The issue of income inequality is one Americans continually wrestle with, with the COVID-19 pandemic foregrounding how housing, health, and general well-being are impacted by the unequal distribution of wealth. Income inequality in the U.S. is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics in Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me, as always, is regular panelist John Baylor, chair of Miami Statistics Department. Our guest today is Joseph. Joseph Gastworth, professor of economics and statistics at George Washington University. Over the course of his career, he's written more than 300 peer-reviewed articles, which have appeared in such journals as the Journal of the American Statistical Association, Journal of the Royal Statistical Society, and the Review of Economics and Statistics. His research has covered a variety of topics in statistical methodology and applications, including economic inequality, the role of statistical evidence in jury discriminations, and equal employment cases. The American Statistical Association awarded him the Carl E. Peace Award for Outstanding Statistical Contributions for the Betterment of Society in 2019. And Gastworth recently co-authored an article for Significance Magazine about the changing nature of wealth inequality in the U.S. Joseph, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. I wonder, just to get the conversation going, if you could talk about, you know, why you felt compelled to write this particular article now? That's a good question. And I was did some work on income inequality, and I was going to try some, develop some new measures, and I was going to try that out on wealth inequality. And I went to the, and this major data source is the Federal Reserve Board has a survey every three years. And when I was looking at the Federal Reserve Board data, I noticed uh, something that was a little bit surprising, that they exclude the Forbes 400, the richest households in America. So think for a moment, that can't be right, because those people are the very upper, upper end, and inequality is how much things are spread around relative to the typical. So that got me thinking to look at how, shall we say, the, the very, the super rich almost, are doing versus the rest of us. Because I, it, was, I just, it was just very surprising to me that you would study wealth inequality by excluding the very, very richest people in America. I, just as a quick follow-up to that, uh, could, could you make a distinction or help un, you know, clarify the difference between wealth inequality and income inequality? Income is usually measured in what you earn either through your work or through interest and dividend in one year. So that's a kind of a, like a one-year shot, how much you've earned and brought in through other sources. Wealth is something that one accumulates over time. For example, many of us contribute a certain percentage of our salary. Often it is matched to some extent by your employer and you build up a pension plan of some sort. So obviously over time that, that accumulates uh, you know, interest, you get the interest and the interest on the interest. So you can think of it as if you sold everything you had at one moment, this is what it would be worth. Now, there are some other technical issues which I don't want to get into, but that's the general idea is wealth is accumulated uh, over your lifetime. So obviously 
age is going to be a factor, which unfortunately the data isn't too good on. But somebody who is older will have more of a pension than you know, money in their pension plan than someone who's younger. I, I wonder, just to go back to the beginning of our conversation, Joe, you mentioned the fact that these families, um, the Forbes 400, are, are cut out of that gauge. Is there any explanation for why they aren't included in that sort of picture of inequality? All I read is it said that they spoke to the Treasury Department and they decided that they shouldn't do that. Now, it may also be that they don't expect these people to respond to the survey. These surveys are, these surveys are uh, voluntary. You know? yeah. So I'm not saying, it doesn't mean that they won't. I'm just saying they might not have expected it. Or they might, you know, the sample size might not be big enough that they would have a high probability of getting one of them anyway. Uh, but there is a way which I, which I hope to include another paper I'm writing with the same co-author uh, of at least approximately adjusting uh, for them. But just an odd thing that they, uh, to my mind, it's a bit odd that they exclude them. As I say, because you can at least make some kind of adjustment. So that, that kind of begs the sort of the natural follow-up question, which is, is, is how is inequality measured? You know, what, what are some of the ways that, that that's framed or that you think about it? And, and then how would you use it in terms of the comparison? I, and I would, you know, so I, I was accused of asking multiple questions at one time. But, you know, the one thing that I, I liked about the significance paper is this, met, this sort of metric that you defined, the NFN metric. So if you could give just a couple of remarks about the general measurement of inequality and then transition into what the NFN metric means, that'd be great. Okay. Well, the standard measure... Uh, of inequality is, is that you'll find for most governments is the Gini coefficient or Gini index. A simple intuitive approach to that is think of two people and you might ask what is their income inequality? Well, suppose you take one person making 30,000, one 50,000, you might say the income inequality is 20,000. But you run into a problem when if you think about it, since I'm in Washington and we have these very high-priced lawyer lobbyists or former congressman lobbyists, and you might have two of them and one makes 510000 and one makes 490000 and so that difference is 20000 Now, in the first case, the difference between somebody making fifty and somebody making 30000 is quite substantial. Same difference for people making in the neighborhood of 500,000 is pretty minor. <laughs> so you might say uh, one way of standardizing this is to say how much is the difference over their total? How much is the difference over their total? And uh, so in the first case, it's about a quarter. In the second case, it's less than 1%. So <laughs> now if you think about, oh, we can now do this average over every family in the country, just take all the pairs and then average them up. That is approximately equal to the Gini index. It's not exact, but that's the easiest way to, to get it. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Now, how I got to the NFN was when we had the, uh, this other measure which uh, I developed uh, and I wanted to, uh, to explore was asking a question, how many, uh, I, I looked at an income inequality, uh, so if you take the top few percent, how many people accumulated from either the bottom or the middle do I need to have the same amount of income? So that's what started me off on uh, looking at the wealth. But when I realized that the very, very top I didn't have, it, it didn't make sense to try to use that. So then, I, so then we thought, of, well, let's look at how many 
people we need, you know, how many families we need to have the same amount of wealth as the Forbes 400. And there we decided that we should look at people at different points on the income curve. The median, which is the middle point, you know, 50% have less, 50% have more, in different percentiles, you know, 95th percentile, and the average of the top 10%. And so that's how we decided uh, that. And so we looked at the data from 89 to 2016 in the paper. We now have updated data to use the future, but we looked at this data. And for example, in, in 1989, you needed about 5.7 million households at the median income to have the same amount of money and things like that. Now, one way you can think about this in terms of the fam number of families when you get to 2019, that we had, you, at the median, you needed 24 million uh, median uh, families. Let's so think about, let's go back to the 1989 figure of 5.7 million. You could think of football stadiums, like the Rose Bowl. Those stadiums approximately, you could have roughly 100,000 people attending. So you can think of each family sending one person to the Super Bowl, <laughs> sitting in the seat. And in that case, back in 89, you would need 57 stadiums <laughs> to have the same amount of money for competing people. But now you will need today 243 such stadiums. And that tells you how great the quality. That ratio is almost five. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking to George Washington University's Joseph Gastworth about wealth inequality. That number to me that you were talking about is so astounding that that change from 1989 where you needed, what was it, 5.7 million households to equal the income of the of the upper upper little level, and then now it's 24.3, I think, million households. I guess I wonder what thoughts you might have about how journalists might thoughtfully cover this issue. There's lots of reporting about income inequality and wealth inequality, um, but it often feels like the same stories are told over and over again in a way that doesn't really, I think, it doesn't always make the numbers meaningful. And I wonder if, if given the work that you've been doing over the course of your career and now this new sort of measurement that you're, you're writing about, if you have thoughts about how journalists can talk about this and write about this in a way that helps people understand the, the change um, that we have lived through and really help them make sense of this for their audiences. Well, one way you, can look at, you might look at it is uh, changing over time. What is interesting, if you look at the numbers, is you have a very big change after 2007. You have to, in 2007, you needed 12 point, stick to the median household, but we'll also look at the very, uh, the, the very successful people too. 12, you needed 12.7 million. In 2010, you needed 17, and in 2013, you had 24.5. That's a, that, so then there's, that's a big doubling right between 2007 and 2013. You ask yourself, what happened? What happened was we had the big financial collapse in 2008, and we had government programs. So 
what did the government programs do? They had a small program to help people with mortgages that was, that was not particularly effective, but they bailed out the banks, the major insurance co uh, companies like AIG, at 100 cents to the dollar. So they obviously did very well. <laughs> and people who own a lot of stock in those companies did very well. You know, you know, I'll give you another example. <clears throat> the economists tell you there's no such thing as a free lunch. But there was a, almost a free lunch. When they bailed out Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the, although they had federal in the title, they did not have a U.S. Treasury guarantee. And that's why their interest rates were about 1% above U.S. Treasuries and about half a percent against the, the government national mortgage rates because those were uh, guaranteed, but was a kind of a lesser guarantee than the Treasury. Well, when they bailed out Fannie, uh, the two mortgage uh, giants, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, they again did it a dollar, uh, 100 cents on the dollar, so that they essentially gave those people uh, U.S. Treasuries. So that's really you know, that was really a gift, uh, and it was really it was not only unfair to the taxpayers, it was also unfair to the people who were more prudent and bought treasuries <laughs> for their retirement plans. So it's very funny. So that was uh, something. And, and the sad part about that is there was a simple thing they could have done. They, they could have said, oh, if we're going to do this, we have to lower the rate of interest you get to the Treasury, and then say, pass it on, pass that interest rate cut on to the people who are paying the mortgage. That would have really helped a lot of citizens. You know, I, when, when I was reading about this NF, and I, one of the things that I thought about was, like in clinical studies, they'll talk about number needed to treat, NNT. I, I think there's sort of, to me, it was like, oh, okay, this is kind of a, it's, it's a, it was a natural unit to think about for the comparisons, because when you start getting into these massively large numbers of, you know, and billions and trillions in terms of these, this total wealth number, having to find this, this metric that makes sense, whether it was number of families of media, of the median wealth family, or the, you know, the number of football stadiums of median wealth families that would do it. I thought that was, that was really a lovely way of framing this. The, the challenge that I would, would think would be just even getting to the point of of defining what is what is wealth or measuring wealth or you know how do you know these are people are you know are these are you said this is a, a this, the data source was Federal Reserve for some of this so are, are these you know surveys of people responding to to kind of what they're identifying assets and income as part of this wealth calculation yes yes I think they probably ask people for uh, I don't know exactly what they do, but they, I would imagine they probably ask to uh, more detailed questions, which possibly have to, people are asked to get their uh, information out before the survey. In other words, you would get your bank statement. If you have stocks, mutual funds, get those statements. If you, now some things are easier. You have a car, you know, Somebody is driving a brand new car, someone's driving an older car, and th those prices are pretty well 
estimable, you know, through the, you know, through the blue book and things. So there's there are some there are a lot of issues. Now, uh, one thing that the conservative economists have criticized the uh, the Fed for is that they don't include your social security, uh, your expected social security payment, which that you could convert that into a pension plan. Uh, on the other hand, on the other side, you can say that when they take, ask for how much you have in your pension plan, uh, for most people, you have a deferred pension plan. I'm sure uh, John has that at his university, as most of us do. That means that when you take the money out, when you're retired, you pay tax on it. So, there's a, so it would be very complicated to make those adjustments because people are in so many different tax brackets. And it's very hard, of course, to predict the tax bracket you're going to be in when you're retired, especially for, for younger people. You know, how do you know what's going to happen? But, uh, but of course, if you think of it as a trend, it doesn't make that much difference. I mean, that, those differences are not going to explain that tremendous jump in inequality that, that occurred after the uh, financial collapse. I, I wonder, given the work that you've done, Joe, and sort of the, the research you've been doing to create this new measurement, sort of if you see, if we don't take some steps to address this, if we don't take a measure, is this, is this gap just going to get worse? Unfortunately, Rosemary, it probably will, because unless you give some, you can also have some incentive programs for saving, like matching contributions. I mean, the trend now, see that there's another cause, too, which you can't control. And that is, often, as, as we've had more women work, which is, mm-hmm. I think is a good thing, uh, you also have people get married. And often you have two income earners. And quite often the mm-hmm. two income earners, if they both met, they met in college or graduate school, and they tend to have higher than average salaries, and that also make household income, income wealth in the parties greater. Now, of course, you really can't tell people, you shouldn't marry so-and-so, marry this person instead. <laughs> you know? So uh, some of this you just have to accept as part of the social uh, milieu. But I think the big thing is the education, because once you get these people from families that are in, the, say, the lowest quartile uh, trained, and they now begin to get you know, even reasonable jobs, jobs that pay the middle level instead of the lowest score, they will begin to save and, and do well. So it's really a long-term project. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. our, our uh, representatives don't, in Congress and the White House don't think further ahead than two to four years, and this is 25 or 30 years. So and, and even in business, they now look at you know, quarterly earnings, and that's a big deal. You know, that you could also do. You could just say options have to be exercised 10 years from now. So the people will mm-hmm. say, Let, let's look at the business. How are we going to be uh, growing and doing 10 years from now? You just have to make that incentive. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Joe, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Okay. Well, I hope uh, I hope I didn't stun you with what I said. <laughs> no, no. 
Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter at Stats and Stories, Apple Podcast, or other places where you find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu. Or check us out at statsandstories.net and be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.